of them are online if you are interested in going back and considering them. Uh, what I'm going to do for us as we get started today is I'm going to read a series of passages from 1 Corinthians for us. These are printed in your bulletin. If you would like to try and follow along in your Bible, obviously you are welcome. Please do that. But I think you might find it easier just because of the way they're structured, like I will, to follow along in the bulletin this morning. As I read these for us, you are no doubt going to sense or, or ask the question, how do these things fit together? I'll try to make the connection clear within the sermon itself. But for the sake of reading them and, and have an idea of where we're going with them, one of the things that we can note as an issue that existed in Corinth was that there appears to have been, by virtue of the fact of what Paul is writing to them, some confusion over the body and over the life of the body. And when I say the body, the confusion in Corinth was confusion over the physical body. What's the purpose of it? Uh, how does the body relate to the spirit? And what's the eternal destiny of the body itself? And then, uh, and then likewise, what about body life? How do we connect to one another as the body of Christ? And this confusion that they had played out with respect to the very topic that we've got before us this summer with respect to eating and drinking. And that's why we've referenced this book so many times in this series that we've been looking at. But it wasn't only eating and drinking as we think of it normally. It was also confusion about the Lord's Supper, confusion about marriage and human sexuality. What do you do with the body there? And confusion about the resurrection itself. Apparently, as we read this, the Corinthians tended to camp in kind of extremes with respect to their views on these things. So some of them took a very ascetic approach to it. It was, an, uh, it was denial and avoidance as much as you could because the body was a bad thing. Others took the perspective of dismissal, saying that the body was no longer relevant because the Lord had delivered us in our souls and would take our souls to heaven, and therefore with the body you could indulge, and others were still just careless with the body. They didn't think about how body life, physical body life, impacted their life as a body and their relationships in Corinth as well. So listen to the word of God as Paul speaks into that confusion that existed there in Corinth. I'm going to start with chapter 6, and then we'll move on from there. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then he continues in that section. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We then go into chapter 7, and as I said, the body confusion presented itself in marriage as well, and chapter 7 addresses the issue of marriage. We come to one section then from uh, verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, 
Let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the th things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And then uh, we'll continue on in chapter 9. Chapter 8 goes in again about food. Chapter 9, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And then 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 is kind of a bridge from the Old Testament passage uh, that we were looking at to the situation in Corinth where Paul kind of brings those together. And I'll just read two verses of that chapter. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And then 31... So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I know that's a lot. May God allow us to put it all together as we look at this theme today. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you for the way that you have created us. And we recognize that we now live in a time when we've been decimated by sin. And every part of us has been impacted by that. We pray that as we look at your word and your instruction today, that you would guide us, grant to us renewal, grant to us restoration. And even as we look at it, we thank you, Jesus, that you came into this world, body and soul, and you have redeemed us, body and soul. So we thank you for your perfect work on our behalf. Guide us then today. We ask this in your name. Amen. Comprehensive. Comprehensive is an idea, it's a word that I want us to think about as we start today. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree, the resulting devastation that took place was comprehensive. Now, perhaps then a, a corollary to total depravity would be comprehensive devastation. Total depravity yields comprehensive devastation in the world and in our lives as well. I'm going to read a passage for us from the book of Proverbs. It's one that you might recognize. It's familiar to me because it was in one of those uh, 
I don't know, Bible tunes that we used to play for the kids when they were younger, but you perhaps will recognize it as well. Here in this passage, listen to the way that Solomon kind of works his way through the body, describing the comprehensive results of sin or the comprehensive presence of sin. Proverbs 6, 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among his brothers. Every single part of us, from head to toe, from heart to head, all of it has been impacted. In all of it, we, we experience and we demonstrate the comprehensive devastation that exists because of sin in this world. Now, one body part that Solomon left out of the uh, description that I just read for us, he includes it in other places but not here, is the stomach or the belly. It too, as it turns out, uh, resides between the top of our head and the bottom of our toes, and it too has been devastated by what our first parents ate. And as we consider that, as we consider the belly, what I am talking about today are our appetites, our cravings, our desires, our, our, our coveting, our affections, our longings, our yearnings, our hungers. These things that are part of the way that we have been made by God, they have become disordered things. They are disorderly in our lives. This was true for the Corinthians, and that's why Paul is writing to instruct them. And of course, it was true for Israel in the wilderness as well, considering the passage that we read in Numbers chapter 11. We could say it simply this way, think back on that passage as Holt read it for us, their cravings got the best of them, right? In that situation, their cravings got the best of them. They were discontent with God's provision of manna. They had had manna out their ears, they were tired of the manna, and they longed to have something else. They tested God. This wasn't in the section that we read, but as it is recounted in Psalm 78, they questioned God, they tested God by saying, can God really prepare a table in the wilderness? I mean, this raining down of manna from heaven, okay, so be it. But, but, can he really set a nice spread before his people in the wilderness or not. They pined, right? They pined for the good old days of Egypt, which were, in fact, the good old days of slavery, which, well, how quickly they forget that the, they were enslaved there. And all they can remember is you know, the fish that we used to get. We used to get fish for free. And we had cucumbers, and we had melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic as well. But they were, as the scripture puts it, like dogs 
returning to their vomit. They were, in fact, like a pig that goes and cleans itself and then immediately returns to wallow in the mire. That's exactly what had taken place with these people, God's people. Their cravings consumed them. They coveted what they did not have. Their cravings took them, and this is critical, as redeemed, freed, delivered people. That's who they were, right? They were redeemed and freed and delivered, and their cravings re-enslaved them. And finally, their cravings buried them. That word, that place that's hard for us to say, kibroth hat ava. Did you look down at your Bible and see what that means? Graves of craving. Graves of craving. Your cravings have the ability to bury you. And that's what took place here in this passage. Don't mistake this, right? This isn't just a case of them wanting something different to eat, some variety. Instead, it is emblematic for them of disordered desires, disordered dreams, and goals, and perceptions. If you were here with us in the beginning, one of the very first verses that I quoted to start this series was with respect to our Lord Jesus when they accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. He wanted too much to eat. He spent too much time eating. He spent too much time drinking. And the people with whom he was drinking and eating were not exactly the right people. But here's what this reminds us of. And this is something we're going to look at here. Just, we're just considering it as we open up. That gluttony isn't simply the sin of eating too much. Drunkenness isn't simply the error of drinking too much. There's other stuff that is going on in the heart that is producing those things. And that's why, if you've ever been in these situations, that's why telling yourself or telling someone you love, just stop doing that, right? Just stop drinking so much. Just stop eating so much. That's why it never works. It never works. It never works for you. It never works when you tell it to someone else as well. They are not effective. The heart is the wellspring. And, and when we're talking about the heart and when we're talking about the belly, we're talking about things that help us to see and uncover the desires that are inside of us. And so we're talking about things like gluttony and drunkenness and binge eating and chronic unhealthy eating, anxiety about food, eating disorders, eating obsessions around food, and just mindless consumption that exists. All of those things, all of them, are complex, devastating, comprehensive manifestations of deeper appetite issues, of deeper heart issues. They're things that allow us to see something else is going on inside of a person. Something else is amiss in there. They are desire disorders. Augustine spent a lot of time thinking about desires and thinking about the body, his own body. 
and he spent time fasting as well. And as he was coming out of a period of fasting, he, he made this comment, which I think is illustrative for us. He said, it's not the impurity of food that I fear. That's not the reason I fast. I don't fast because I'm afraid of the impurity of food. I don't come out of a fast because I'm afraid of the impurity of food. But what I fear is that uncontrolled desire. Uncontrolled desire, in other words, the food or the drink, though oftentimes the painful, the evident, the presenting problem that exists is actually not the root. Instead, the roots are found in other things. The roots are found in anxiety and fear and depression, a lack of contentment, a lack of control, compulsions, or to come back, to come back to Augustine and then to come back to Numbers. The, the, the roots are found in disorderly, distorted, and disproportionate desires or just to use the one single word that we found in Numbers chapter 11. The root is found in cravings. That's what it's there. And in this way, what happens is that which we crave, in the case of the book of Numbers and Israel in the wilderness, what they craved in particular, besides the leek and the onions, was meat, right? Meat was the object. They said, we, we, we want to have meat in addition to uh, this manna that you're giving to us, that which they craved becomes that which destroyed them, true for them, true for us as well. These things that we cling to with respect to food or with respect to what we think of our body or what we want others to think of our bodies, these things promise to us freedom. Promise to us some level of control. If you can't control anything else in the world, you can control what you put into your mouth. You can control what your body looks like. And yet those very things that seem to promise freedom are actually the very things that end up enslaving us and destroying us. Second Peter 2.22 puts it this way. For whatever overcomes a person to that they are enslaved. Whatever overcomes a person to that thing, they are enslaved. Somewhere in your Bible, maybe the additional verses after the service, in your Bible, in your bulletin, excuse me. There's Philippians 3, and in Philippians 3, talks, Paul talks about those whose God is their belly. Their God is their belly. Their desires have taken the place of God. And the Bible has another word for this. And, and the reason I'm, I'm putting all these together is I want us to see just how complex it is. What's the other word when your God becomes your belly? Idolatry. Idolatry. It's not just a sin against the Tenth Commandment. It's creating idolatry. It's subjecting yourself. It's enslaving yourself to something else. The object of our desire becomes the thing which has dominion over us. And just to show you that link between the desires and the idolatry, let me read again just one verse before what I read earlier from 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things took place as examples for us, these things being what took place with Israel in the wilderness. 
that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Okay? Their desire for evil became idolatry. And how was it expressed? As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's what their idolatry was. They sat down to eat and drink and rise up, rose up to play. On the front of your bulletins, I put Colossians 3.5 just to show this idea, again, that covetousness doesn't stand alone. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Idolatry is what we're talking about this. So, so I've put a lot on the table here. We've talked about covetousness. We've talked about idolatry. We've talked about contentment. We've talked about the complexity of the interrelationship between these things, these cravings. What's the point of all of it? What's the point of belaboring these difficulties with respect in particular to eating and drinking? Well, the point is twofold. And the first point is this, and that is simply for the sake of our understanding, just so that we understand it. For those of you who struggle, who are here this morning, and you have struggled for many years with food, with your relationship to food, or you have struggled with drinking in whatever form that might be, God and His Word appreciate the depth of that struggle. Appreciate the fact that it's not just this little surface thing. It's not just, well, just don't eat quite as much. Just don't put quite as much on your plate. That it's much more significant than that. The reality has been that we've seen eating and drinking are fundamental matters of life and death and the heart. They are complex. And eating and drinking have been battlegrounds for sin since the very beginning. So if you struggle, you're not alone and don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by the struggle and don't be surprised by the depth and complexity of the struggle as well. These things are not simple and they are not simple to overcome. And the second, in terms of the understanding at least, is for those of you who don't struggle with these particular things, who don't struggle with food or who don't struggle with alcohol or the things that come with them, perhaps seeing the biblical dynamic will help you to have some level of understanding and some level of compassion for people who do. For people who do. Because many people do. I have had to learn this the hard way. I've said this from the pulpit before. Lauren and I have watched more than our share of immediate family members descend into alcoholism. We've watched it. And what do you want to say? You want to say, just stop, right? Just, just don't have another drink. Just put it away. You want it to be simple because when you're looking from the outside, at first you can look at it and go, well, this is kind of simple. Don't do that thing. Don't keep doing that thing. But over time, you just see it. You witness it. You watch it. And you know it's not easy. You know it tears people apart from the inside out. Lauren and I now live quite close to uh, 
a facility that's an inpatient facility that cares for people with eating disorders. And we've had several families, Christian families, who have gotten in contact with the church and then uh, we've gotten in contact with them who have stayed at our house while their spouse or their son or their daughter is there in that facility receiving treatment for the eating disorder. Why do you need it? Because it's deep, because it's complex, because it's painful. And hopefully this helps us to understand that just a little bit. So in the first place, the hope is that the scriptures help us to understand the intricate web, the insidious network involved in things that go wrong with eating and drinking. But the scriptures do not leave us there. The scriptures, in fact, give us a pathway towards restoration. It gives us, for example, warnings. And I talked, I think, in one of the very early sermons about food labeling warnings. But, but just take one little warning that the scripture gives to us at the end of 1 John, where John says to his people, little children, keep yourself from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. There are things like this, things that seem okay or seem fairly harmless, but you've got to be careful of them. And so there are warnings. But in addition to the warnings that Scripture gives to us, the Scripture also gives to us direction. It also provides for us a pathway towards redemption, towards restoration. And, and we want to talk about that. We want to appreciate the struggle that is there and yet also appreciate the clarity of the Word of God and the ability of God to know the soul and to be able to speak into that particular struggle. So what I want to do for us now is I just want to, through the Scriptures, just illustrate for us four guides, four pillars that God provides to us in this battle and I want to do it in a way that I don't want you to hear me being in any way reductionistic or formulaic in these things. But nevertheless, we have to say what the Bible says because there's hope to be found in these things for overcoming idolatry, for reorienting desires, for combating the sins of the flesh. And that's the bigger category of which eating and drinking are a couple of them. And particularly for moving forward, though, towards a healthier life of eating and drinking. Each one of these things that I'm going to say has a secular counterfeit. That sounds very much like them, just so you know. I'm not going to point that out always in each one of them, but there's counterfeits out there to each one of these things. So what's the first pillar? Well, the first pillar in overcoming idolatry or any of the disordered desires or desires of the flesh is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. If we want to be delivered from idolatry, if you want to be delivered from controlling desires, from cravings, from evil desires, from anxiety, from addictions, from compulsiveness, and from binges, if you want freedom from the cravings that enslave us, then we need more. We need more than a higher power, and we need more than willpower. You know you need more than willpower, right? Because you've tried willpower and that hasn't been effective. We need more than that. 
The impact of sin on our bodies, on our hearts, on our appetites was comprehensive and total. The salvation, the freedom that Jesus brought with his body and soul that he purchased for us on the cross is comprehensive and total. It doesn't leave out any part of your being. It doesn't leave out your blood doesn't leave out your soul. It doesn't leave out your belly. We need deliverance. Believe in Jesus and you will be free indeed. The journey towards freedom starts and it continues and it ends in Jesus. And please, again, hear what I'm saying. The point here isn't that the minute that you believe in Jesus, all of these things magically disappear. But it is the point of beginning. It is the place to begin, and it is the place to always return to, to say that my desire above everything else should be a desire for Jesus Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And so all has come from Jesus. All of our lives are for Jesus. So whatever else we might say, the pillar or the first pillar that we rest upon is the good news of the forgiveness and of the freedom that has been promised in our Lord and Jesus Christ. Deliverance and the power for it even now and the perfection of it in the life to come. The second pillar that we have is that we have to understand and this is what Paul is at pains to explain, we have to understand the intent of the body. Why did God give us these bodies? Why do we look the way we do? Why are we like this? Now, we have, I'm sure you have as well, we've been enjoying watching snippets of the Olympics and any of number of sports uh, that we don't particularly see very often or frankly really aren't even that interested in. We're interested in them for two weeks. And one of the unique things that you can do as you watch the Olympics is you can almost see what event or what sport this athlete goes with by looking at their body. Right? You can look at the body shape. Think of the, the, the swimmers or the gymnasts uh, or the people who are in track and field. You can look at their body and almost tell, is this a marathon runner? Or is this a 5,000 runner? Is this a 200 meter runner? Is this a 100 meter runner? Why? Because the bodies fit. The intent of the body matches. Somewhere, someone along the way went, you know, you're really designed well for this particular thing, or you discovered it somewhere along the way. And then you trained and your body got more and more in shape for that particular event. Now athletes and many others glorify the body. They make an idol out of the body. They idolize their body while others dismiss the body as either not worth the trouble, incidental to the soul, going down anyway. Why bother with it? It's a necessary evil. Here's the biblical perspective. The biblical perspective is this. The body is made by God. It's made by God. To be sure, because of our fall into sin, it is subject to corruption and decay. But the body, and this is significant for the Corinthians, the body, says Paul to the, the Corinthians, will be raised. 
You, you don't just get rid of it. The body that you have will be raised up in glory. Paul says to them, your body is a member of Christ, and therefore it's precious to him. We didn't read this verse uh, from chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your bodies are members of Christ. They're precious to him. Your body, of course, is a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, chapter 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body is not your own. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And so, what's the body for? You have to know the intent of the body. The intent of the body that God has given to you is so that you might glorify God in your body. That's why he gave it to you. That you might glorify him. And that applies, for example, though it's not the subject of today's sermon, that applies to human sexuality and sexual relationships, and it applies to eating and drinking. And that's why this summary verse is so appropriate. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Eating and drinking isn't just something that's neutral or out there or irrelevant. It is something by which in your body you glorify God. And so when you do it, you should glorify God as you do it. The intent of the body, to use the language of the shorter catechism, the intent of the body is that with this body, with your body, you are to glorify and to enjoy God himself. Third pillar. So you got two pillars so far. you got the pillar of the gospel. The second pillar is why did God make the body? And that's what Paul is trying to say to the Corinthians. If you're going to understand these things, you have to understand why God made the body the intent of it. Third pillar. Okay, so how do we do that in eating and drinking? How, how then do you glorify God in eating and drinking? Well, last two sermons. Sometimes you do it by feasting. Sometimes you glorify God by fasting. But most of the time, by ferial eating. Ferial, that's a word I threw out in the very first sermon. I got it from Robert Capon. Ferial eating. Ferial eating is non-holiday eating. It's the everyday stuff. Or, to put another spin on this point, how do you glorify God in eating and drinking? The answer, biblically speaking, is moderation. Feasting isn't moderation. Fasting isn't moderation. But most of life consists of moderation of what we take into ourselves. All foods may be lawful, right? That was the perhaps something that Paul said in a certain way, and so, certainly something the Corinthians picked up on. All foods, are, everything's lawful. All foods may be lawful, but all-you-can-eat buffets are lawful only some of the time. Only some of the time are all-you-can-eat buffets an appropriate response to that. Paul's point is this, I will not be dominated by anything, nothing. Freedom is purchased by Christ, but we must recognize that the devil and the old sinful nature that we have and the world of advertising all conspire together to make you want, to make you desire. To make you into a consumer. One who craves and then one who eats. 
these things. And they do that not merely with evil things, but with good things as well. This is where this passage on marriage in chapter 7 comes into play. Paul is encouraging moderation, and he encourages it with respect in that section, I don't know if you caught it, in marriage, in mourning and rejoicing, in buying and in doing business, all of which, he says, can become distractions when they go to excess, when they go to extreme. They can all be forms of unhealthy anxiety and unhealthy preoccupation. And Paul urges moderation in all of them. In your mourning, don't go too far down. In your rejoicing, don't go too far up. In your marriage, don't make your family life into your idol. In your buying of things, don't make stuff into your idols. Into your dealings with the world, don't make that into the thing that is of excess to you. Paul says, no, 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 no. Moderation in all of those things because there is a goal and the goal is devotion to the Lord. That's what the goal is. Keep the main thing, the main thing, devotion to the Lord. Are you going to do all those other things? Of course, they're not bad things. But devotion to the Lord is the main thing. And brothers and sisters, he is not talking about unbelievers here. The Corinthians weren't unbelievers. The people in the wilderness were the people who had been redeemed and delivered. And nevertheless, they were overcome by those things. So that means you can be too. You can be too in whatever form it might take. He goes on when talking about the athlete, of course, to call this self-control. Self-control. Now, one might say that with respect to all these Olympic athletes that we've been watching, that they have extraordinary amounts of self-control, right? They, I'm sure they watch their diets really carefully. They watch their bodies really carefully, and they fit themselves for the particular goal that they've got, the particular event. That kind of self-control is not the self-control that we're talking about. Lots of people, non-Christians, have that kind of self-control. The self-control that we're talking about is a self-control that comes from the Spirit. The self-control of which we're speaking is a gift of the Holy Spirit and unto, unto devotion to the Lord. For the athlete, the goal is to receive a perishable crown, right? A wreath that goes away. But not for the Christian. Self-control has as its end devotion to the Lord himself. So there's a time to feast, and there's a time to fast, and then there's a time for scrambled eggs and tuna casserole and PBJs as well. Fourth and final pillar in our battle against idolatry and disorders. It's not the avoidance of the object of our idolatry, but a proper use of the thing that God has given according to the intention and the design for which he gave it. I know that's a mouthful. The idea here is that in your battle against these things that would control you, the answer isn't always destroy them and get rid of any sign of them. Instead, the answer is, put them to the use that God intended for them. I'm thankful again to Robert Capon in the Supper of the Lamb. He helped me to see that not only is an idolatry an affront to God, it is also, it clearly is that, it is also an affront to the purpose for which God created the thing which you've turned into an idol. So here's the example, the golden calf. 
Okay, the golden calf. We know that was idolatry. We know they were worshiping the wrong thing. But in addition to that, it was an affront to gold, to cows, and to sculpture as well. And the answer that God gives is not, well, let's get rid of all gold, let's get rid of all cows, and let's not make any sculpture at all. That's avoidance, right? That's, that's kind of where you take the extreme, you take the problem, you go, get it out. We, can't, we don't want that thing anymore. Instead, repurpose. Repurpose, reconfigure. Take those things and use them for the construction of the tabernacle and the worship of God in the place where he chooses for his name to dwell. Where in that place, there's going to be gold covering over all sorts of things. And in that place, there's going to be sculpture. And you know what the sculptures are that exist in the temple? Oxen, of all things. There, there are carved oxes in the temple that God instructed them to place there. You see, you see the diff what's going on there? It's not, okay, I'll never touch ox again. I'll never touch gold again. No, 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 no. God says, use it the way I designed it. I designed it for my glory. I designed it for your joy as well. Use it properly for that thing. Practicing an appropriate, proportional, delightful use of things as given and as intended is a better prophylactic against idolatry and abuse than any avoidance and haranguing you might do. Parents, did you hear that? Will be parents of older kids, did you hear it? Practicing a delightful, God-glorifying, God-honoring use of the things that he has given in this world according to his intended purpose for those things is better protection against idolatry than if you were seeking to avoid them altogether. Because that's why God made them. That's the intent of God in giving those things. Now, brothers and sisters, I am aware, as I've said, alcoholics abound in our family. I'm aware that sometimes something has become so powerful, drinking in the case of alcoholics, that maybe they have to not do it at all. I have forbidden Lauren from bringing Oreo cookies into the house. I have no control around them, none. And I, I, I don't mean to make light, sorry. I, I'm, I'm throwing that in there. Um, I, I recognize that there may be exceptions to what I'm saying right now because of our past experience. Okay, so be it. So there are exceptions to some of these things, but those aren't the rule. Those aren't the rule. Augustine tells us that the goal is not abstinence, if you will. The goal is to love God through the things that he has made in a way that is appropriate to them, that carries the weight of them. If you get rid of wine, you miss the purpose for which God created the wine, which is to make the heart of man glad. That's why he made it. So you miss the purpose if you get rid of it. That's the idea that is here. Thus, seeing the end goal helps us to avoid making whatever. The ice cream the, at hand or the beer or the wine, making that thing an idol. It helps us to avoid it. My friends, Jesus recognizes the reality and the severity of the temptation to be anxious and unsettled around eating and drinking. He recognizes that our desires can become disorderly 
and idolatrous. I have no desire to oversimplify complex issues, but nevertheless, in that, we must strive for faith and for rest and for renewal, which is found in the one who is the good shepherd who gives himself to us as food and drink. Himself and nothing less. That's what he's given as to say, this is what you should desire, me above all other things. He is the one who bids us. Do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink. Your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you as well. All right. I know this was a mouthful of things. I hope that it made some sense. If you would like to, if you need to talk more about them, I am glad to do that. We'll close it with simply saying that Jesus is the way out of the darkness that often consumes our hearts and our bellies. Lord, help us. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have disorderly desires. Not one single person. Help us to seek after you. Above all else above all earthly things, above all the things that are good given by you, and certainly above all the evil desires, help us to desire you. And Lord, heal the hurting, restore the broken, and build them up. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond.